The Ordinary Folk Podcast is a project that highlights the fortitude of common, everyday people through storytelling. This is a collection of stories that showcases silent human resilience, heartbreak, and triumph. You can follow this podcast at Ordinary Folk Podcast on Instagram, and you can be a part of this project by reaching out to me at ordinaryfolkpodcast at gmail.com. My first guest is a 24-year-old mother of one and journalist. She has a master's degree in cultural analysis and social theory and is known for her free speech activism in Canada, specifically on university campuses. She was recently launched into the Canadian political news junket when she was wrongfully reprimanded by university officials for showing a polarizing video in one of her lectures. I have the pleasure of interviewing her today on what it's like to stand up to authority and define your own path. Welcome to the podcast, Lindsay Shepard. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so I want to start out by sort of digging into your past and getting a sense of how you arrived to be the person that you are that did the thing that you did and how it sort of defined your story. Can you give me a sense of what your childhood was like? How many siblings did you have? What were your parents like? Okay. Um, so I was born in Victoria. My parents met at UVic. They divorced when I was four. So I don't think I actually have any memories of them together. No siblings until I was 11 and then 13. I got a half brother and a half sister. So I was kind of an only child. Um, And so throughout my childhood, I was living in, you know, the Vancouver area. And then Mm -hmm. every other weekend, I would go on the ferry, Mm -hmm. like the BC ferries to visit my dad. So then you live primarily with your mom, basically. Yeah. And what was she like as an influence on you? Was she, you know, really a powerful authoritarian who made you want to stand up for yourself? Or was she more reserved and Um, So my mom has always told me that I'm not assertive enough, but over the years I have become more assertive and she told me she's like very happy that that happened. Yeah. So as a child, she was telling you you're not assertive enough. Um, She just told me like later in life that she was worried I wouldn't be an assertive person as an adult. And so she told me recently, like she's very pleased that I did become more assertive. In a lot of ways, I still am not. I'm pretty non-confrontational. Your dad, what sort of influence did he have on Yeah. So my mom is the more like political one, that that whole side of my family. Yeah. They're the ones where at any get together, we're talking about cultural, social, political issues. Mm. Um, On my dad's side, that's, it's basically the opposite. That's just not really discussed. So it was, it was mainly your mom, it sounds like that really gave you this need to voice your opinion, be informed and sort of be connected in the discussion. Yeah, I would say that my on my dad's side, though, he instilled in me um, a passion for the outdoors. Yeah. So we were going kayaking, skiing, been yeah. skiing since I was four. Yeah. Caving, uh, those kinds of activities. Okay. So that's what he contributed. Yeah. Like camping, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so how old are your siblings now? Um, now they are 14 and 11. Okay. And do you have a huge impact on them or are they sort of influenced by you and the things that you've done? Um, so are you talking about like, yeah, uh, like your experience at university and what happened to you and how you sort of became a journalist? Um, I think they'll understand it later. I don't think they really get it right now. So your experience then in elementary and high school, how is that? Um, I liked elementary school. High school, um, is just not for me. Like once I graduated high school, it, it was great because all of a sudden the world opens up. So I'm someone who's very excited about all the possibilities and all the paths you can take. Yeah. Um, And I'm the kind of person who even just wants like everything all at once. Yeah. I wish I could live in Toronto. I wish I could live in Calgary. I wish I could live here. It's like, I I just want to experience everything. Yeah. Like, can you kind of expand on who you were a bit more? Were you very shy? Yeah. So I like being in one place and seeing the same people, not necessarily liking those people. I mean, I still have, I still keep in touch. Yeah. I have two close friends from from my high school years. Um, But yeah, I'm just not a high school kind of person. Were you always outspoken like from high school or did it sort of develop later on? I think it developed later on. So like, let's say in university. Yeah, but even like I remember my first couple of years of university, I was the kind of person who never raised my hand in class, you know? Oh, okay. And then I think maybe what started to happen is like when topics were discussed and I didn't raise my hand. I would always kind of walk away from the class feeling like I should have said something. Yeah. Like I should have said what I thought. Yeah. Or um, like in my head, I had the answer right. I should have said it out loud, that kind of stuff. Like, and even if I got it wrong, it would have been good to try. And then eventually I just in my third, fourth year started putting my hand up in class, talking yeah. more. So what was your, un- what did you do your undergrad in? Communication. And how was that for you? How was that first experience in academia for you? Um, so I, in general, I liked my degree. Yeah. I have to be honest, though, now that I'm in the part where I'm paying back my student loan, it, it kind of makes you, you know, look back and think like, ugh, like, 
I'm paying back so class. much money. Yeah. yeah. But at the time I was like, you know, loving learning. Um, I actually am someone who really likes school. Yeah. Uh, I like writing. I like reading. Yeah. And but yeah, like now looking at like the thousands of dollars I have to pay back. It's like oh. and, and you do compare yourself with people who didn't go to university and now they like own a house. But, you know, oh. they're at the same age as you and yeah. they, they own a house and like um, they have a very established job and all this kind of stuff or they've started their own like trade practice. Yeah. And like, it's, it's just different paths. Yeah. You, you can't help but look at that and think like, oh, but I spent like tens of thousands so of dollars. So there's a here. bit of a feeling of resentment there. Yeah. Just like, but oh, well, it is oh. what it is. Yeah. Like, of course I don't regret it because I'm like happy where I am today. Did you, was it ever in your mind that you might not go to university when you were younger? No. Okay. So you always thought I, I want an academic career of some sort. Yeah. Not necessarily, but like when I was younger, I remember I was always asking my mom questions. Yeah. I don't even remember what I was asking like yeah. throughout my childhood. And she would always answer, you'll understand. She would explain something and she'll be like, you'll understand when you're in uni- university. Okay. And so I was thinking, okay, I'll, oh, like, I I'll really understand. Need to get there. Yeah, <laughs> I'll understand everything when I'm in university. Okay. It was really wild for then what happened to you during your master's to happen because it literally projected you into the news junket and you were then doing interviews constantly and having to push out your opinion because people wanted it suddenly. Right. So let's get into that. Your master's degree that was in cultural analysis and social theory. I know you have a lot to say about that because you were quite unhappy with the subject matter that you covered in that, in that, in that program. And it was a lot different than what you expected. So can you talk a little bit about your dissatisfaction in that program and sort of what was happening with you and your peers? Yeah, well, so of course, like I should have known by seeing on the website and seeing the keywords that I'm now familiar with, you know, like Foucault and well, I mean, we knew Foucault, but you know, like Deleuze and intersectionality and like all these obscure terms that I can hardly even remember now. So I get into the program and it's it's um, the first day you're meeting all your classmates and I was sitting in the classroom. It was only like 13 other people, yeah. I think, in my cohort. And we were going around the room introducing ourselves and saying our like what we want to do for our major paper. And everyone in the room, like so the first person introduces themselves as having they them pronouns. Yeah. And like, I swear at that moment, I was just like, I'm going to have a terrible year. And oh, and before that also, there was an email. There was like an email thread um, between the communication students, which I was loosely associated with because I was a TA in that department. Yeah. And they were introducing themselves. And yeah, it was all the the same kind of stuff. Right. And I was just thinking like, ugh. And and so what about that turns you off? Because that's um, that's very common. So, okay, it wasn't only the pronoun thing. It was also um, the, the content of what these people were saying. Um, you know, so they, they all had interests in LGBTQ mm. issues, Marxism, um, Islamophobia, uh, fat studies, like these kinds of things. Okay. And what did you want to talk about? What did you want your master's degree to be focused on? Um, so at that time, my original plan was I was going to study the consolidation of cinemas in Canada. So okay. how almost all cinemas are now owned by Cineplex, okay. at least in like most parts of Canada. Yeah. This is like a communication topic, you yeah. know? And, you know, how does that limit our choices of films? Does it, you know, take out the number of alternative films we would be able to see um, and stuff like that? And, you know, because a lot of independent theaters have been closing down. Of course, it's not what I ended up doing. I ended up writing my paper on free speech on campus because... Yeah. So, because of what? Well, yeah. I guess this fast forwards a bit, but yeah, yeah, I was really worried about finding a supervisor. I was like, no one's going to want to supervise me now. Yeah. I'm like the the black sheep of the school. Um, but one of the professors from my department reached out to me and said, if you write about free speech on campus, I'll support I'll, yeah, I'll be your supervisor. And he told me in person when we had that meeting, he was like, I'm very um, ambiguous about this situation. Okay. So I guess he didn't have an opinion one way or another. Before you even entered your master's degree, it sounds like you didn't think it was going to be this... Um, I don't know, how would you describe it? Like very liberal environment that was very... Yeah. So, I mean, what I discovered is that grad school is is so different because in your undergrad, you just have a wider selection of people. Grad school is for people who want to take it one step further. And so they're, you know, very passionate about something. And a lot of these people, they're passionate about 
you know, let's say social justice that's kinds social of justice topics, issues, the ones okay. that are trendy right now. Yeah. And um, before I became the, the black sheep, I had conversations with these people. We went out for coffee sometimes. Yeah. And if you say anything that isn't really in line with uh, yeah. the correct things to say, oh, yeah. they, they shut down. Yeah. And I remember like the, the things they would talk about is just like, oh, like this, this Finland has a racist border policy, blah, blah. blah. And like, it's just everything is racism. Everything's yeah. phobic. Right. So can you give me an example of like a conversation that you had early on with your peers in university? Like, yeah. So um, I, I brought up uh, this was just like at a coffee thing after class. I brought up how our syllabus had an indigenous land acknowledgement on it. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not sure I really agree with this Yeah, being here on okay. the syllabus. Like, yeah. what does it even mean for it to be on a syllabus? Yeah. Okay. And like, they both, it was just two other people, I think. They just yeah. kind of stared at me. Oh, yeah. And then one one of them said something, kind of mumbled something. But the other one who I found out later was very social justice-y. Um, they were sussing you they just They moment. just kind of like stared at me. Yeah. Because yeah. that, like, this is what the people do. They can't engage. They just stare. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> so I feel like that's, it's, it, it was in part the context and what they were talking about but it was also the fact that there was no real discussion it's either you agree with us or we're not even going to talk to you right so yeah well i think what it is is they start to sense like yeah oh you're not like us yeah yeah <laughs> or you're thinking differently. it's not even necessarily that mm, that you think differently it's that i think you were just questioning what's going on mm -hmm. like you obviously don't disagree with um, LGBTQ stuff. You just question it. And by virtue of questioning it, people then think you're against it. I mean, I might disagree with some parts. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, as a whole, like you, do you think that people should be able to use different pronouns and stuff like that? Sure. Yeah. So that, for example, if you question that, you felt as if you were completely blacklisted. Like, oh, she's, she's raised an inquiry into why we do this or behave like this, that means she's against it. That means we don't talk. Yeah. But I mean, if I like look back to my master's program, I mean, so this, everything started happening in early November. Yeah. So I really only had September, October as a normal grad student yeah. where um, I did not have any attention on me. I guess your experience in your master's degree was sort of like the very consolidation of everything that you had been, you know, talking and thinking about in your undergrad. And it sort of came to a head there because at one point you showed a video in one of your tutorials with, um, how, how large was the group in your tutorial? I taught two classes. Yeah. And then on that day, I also was substituting for someone. So I think I had three classes that day. So that would have been probably about 75 people total. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's Quite large. Yeah, but in three sections. Usually okay. I just had two. Yeah. And so you decided to show a video of Jordan Peterson. And this is this is um very well-known thing that happened. And do you want to sort of describe what happened yeah. after that? First of all, like I, I found Jordan Peterson on YouTube. Yeah. I don't even know where or yeah. why. I wish I could remember yeah. how I stumbled upon that video. Um but I thought this was a really interesting character. I've never seen this kind of thought be expressed before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and he's so, wildly popular for it if you don't, uh, if you're not familiar with him, you know, at least in a short form sort of way. Yeah. So this this was a clip from um, The Agenda with Steve Pagan, which is a TV Ontario uh, TV show. Yeah. And it has this panel discussion element. And on that particular episode, it was called Gender Rights and Freedom of Speech, I think. Yeah. And so they were talking about Bill C-16, which is legislation in Canada that, you know, says you have to use pronouns. Okay. And Jordan Peterson was opposed to the mandated use of pronouns. Okay. Um, and, and so on that panel discussion, they were, everyone was just kind of presenting their arguments as to why they would use them. And then Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. was saying, like, this is why I have a problem. Yeah. And then... And you just, you brought this up for your class to just discuss continue on the discussion that they yeah. were discussing okay so the class itself it's like a i think it was a 50 minute class a five yeah. zero minute class um and so every week we had like a part of the class was a grammar and writing 
focus theme. And so, for example, this this time it was grammar, but a future weeks were like punctuation, citation styles, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So this there were two weeks on grammar. And I thought like, yeah, I prepared like a whole slideshow about like grammar do's and don'ts, but I thought oh like they're going to be like kind of bored. Yeah. They're, they're going to be like, oh, like, couldn't we do something a little more interesting? So I yeah. thought... Okay, well, I'm also going to introduce this clip I stumbled upon just to kind of break up the class, like do something a little different. Um, And uh, we'll just talk about the the wider social implications of pronouns because gender neutral pronouns were in our textbook. And I thought, okay, well, oh, so it was in your textbook because I was going to make the argument that maybe um, the university university officials that sort of reprimanded you were going off of the basis that this is completely unrelated to what we're learning. But it was literally in your textbook. It was, yeah, and it was it was grammar. We were talking about pronouns. Um, That's very topical. But and but I bet like in response to that because that is what some people said. But I bet if I went on some sort of speech about how important it is to use gender neutral pronouns. And I showed a whole bunch of videos about like non-binary and trans people and how important their pronouns are to them. And how it's changing language. I would have ran into no trouble at all. Like I would have won an award. Okay. Yeah. So then there, right then and there, it seems like on a smaller scale, you've always been comfortable waiting your own path and sort of figuring out your own thing. Because you didn't have to do that. That was a little bit risky and it might not have been risky in your mind, but it is in the grand scheme of things. And it was right. Yeah. But I asked the other TAs cause there were seven other TAs. So it was, yeah. it's quite a big class. And then yeah. obviously they're split up into the tutorials. Yeah. I asked like, Oh, what are you guys doing for grammar? Like, yeah. And they were going to study the tweets mm-hmm. of celebrities. Yeah. Um, like Katy Perry kind of yeah. celebrities and look for grammar mistakes in the tweets. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's Twitter. Like you have to sometimes omit apostrophes yeah. and stuff because mm-hmm. it's a character limit. Yeah. Like this is just not helping. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, but I did the wrong thing, even yeah. though their, their exercise was completely futile. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's more of like a colloquial use of grammar and language in tweet. Like tweeting is not supposed to be really long form thing. It's quick little nibbits of like information or comedy or whatever. Right. And, and I just feel like if like you have to remember these students that we were TAing, they, they pay to go to university. Yeah. You're showing them like Katy tweets. Perry's tweets. Yeah. Like really? Like, yeah. <laughs> they're paying like what? So 800 bucks for that course. Did you feel sort of like disillusioned by the fact that you were sitting in front of university students, even talking about grammar and punctuation? Yeah, um, that that was kind of like a whole separate issue. Yeah, is like it it really doesn't have a bearing on like my yeah. decision to show yeah the the clip, but it might in the sense that you're constantly going through these situations where you're feeling disillusionment day after day. You're not allowed to question things. You're not allowed to um, yeah question things. That can be very hard on the spirit to just go along with the way things are laid out for you, because that would have made you really safe. If you never asked any questions, if you never, you know, did this thing that you thought would be enriching for your students, you would have slid out unnoticed in your master's degree, completely unnoticed. Right. So I think in part, these moments of disillusionment did aggravate the end result of you, you know what, saying, I'm going to the media, I'm going to put these people on blast, mm-hmm. right? Because I don't think you were ever really comfortable with the way things were going. I think fundamentally, you need to be able to speak and ask questions. Mm-hmm. And that's where it all sort of started to degrade. Right. Right. But yeah, like in regards to, you know, first year university students being taught grammar yeah. and all that, like the thing is, yeah, I checked like to do a communication degree at um, Wilfrid Laurier, which has lower standards than yeah. some other universities uh, in English 12, you only had to get like 70 percent. And it's like, I just don't think that's sufficient to be getting into a communication degree, which yeah. is writing intensive yeah. and reading comprehension intensive. Yeah. And it's like, you if you don't excel in the English language, yeah. and this is completely apart from, you know, I did have um, yeah. ESL students in my class, so English as a second or additional language. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can't really talk. This is the thing. You can't talk about these things because yeah. it's kind of violates student privacy. It's kind of 
kind of feel unethical bringing mm-hmm. this stuff up. So I don't want to, I don't really want to go into it that much. But yeah, like there's some students who like they could not form a sentence in English. And it's yeah. like, I feel really, really bad putting yeah. an F on that paper. I feel yeah. so bad because like some of them come up to me and tell me their stories and yeah. like their, their mental health problems and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah. I feel really bad, but like you can't write yeah. in English. Yeah. I get that. Like there is still a hierarchy of intelligence or the ability to use the English language that has to be upheld because that's what communications is sort of all about is to be able to transmit information effectively right but of course like if you continue on this discussion we'll get so far off because this goes to the whole business model universities yeah (laughs) yeah so no but i i appreciate the fact that you were willing to on the small scale because you you know doing this tutorial that's not you know big kahunas it's a small experience it's not that big but you still brought in your own individuality of like hey maybe this clip of this sort of controversial person at the time will be enriching and exciting for my students in some degree and they might be forced to think outside of the bubble or at least at the very least feel like it's okay to ask questions or discuss things that are very nuanced and very new, you know, in the sense that gender pronouns at the time were just really emerging and they're really being discussed in news media. Um, So I do appreciate that. And I think that's really incredible that you were able to do that because honestly going outside of the, um, the constant like need to support everyone and never question anyone and um, always support people who identify as victims, so on and so forth is difficult because you, a lot of people lose their jobs. They lose their, uh, you know, their, their ability to move fluidly in their society in general because of that sort of stuff. Like if you even say one thing, one tweet can even be harvested after years and years and then ruin a person's life. Right. So That is, I think, in a sense, quite brave because you were just, you were nobody, essentially. You were just a a master's student at this university. And I wish it didn't have to be brave, though, because it's it's like, it's not like it's because I think so much is on the line that it can be scary to say our opinion. Well, I have a related anecdote quickly. This is actually from my undergrad. So first of all, have you heard of the term like red pilling? Red pilling, it's kind of like when you wake up and realize the truth about the world. It's usually related to like a liberal person becoming more conservative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But so like a lot of people say like Lori red pilled me. That was kind of the the narrative like on Twitter and stuff like that. But then I I would kind of sometimes think um, and trace back like when did I start to why was it me who kind of thought differently about these things? And I remember my last semester of my undergrad, I was taking a political science course. Yeah. And the professor said something about um, like, and he was very like angry at the time. He was like, stupid racists are, or so many stupid people are racist against Islam. Yeah. And then I put up my hand like, and I was just like, well, um, Islam is not a race, so it should be okay to criticize Islam. Yeah. And, and like, there were these two conservative guys in the class who were like the token conservatives and yeah. everyone else was not. Yeah. And then I remember like, like after class, one of the conservative guys came up to me and he's just like, Hey, are you a con? And I was like, what? And he's like, are you a conservative? And oh. I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, Oh, okay. And I was just like a conservative. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and now it's just like, if someone asked me, are you a conservative? I'd be like, eh, yeah, kind of, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but right back to your story here, after you showed that clip, that's when everything kind of came to a head because you were pulled aside by some of the university officials, uh, of your department in communications and you were reprimanded, but you had the, um, clever idea to record it. So you made an audio recording on your laptop. So can you describe what that was like when you were pulled into that and how was it like specifically, I want to know what was it like emotionally? Because I think, Um, for a lot of us who are in university or, you know, doing higher education, the idea of being pulled into that sort of office to have that sort of discussion is terrifying beyond belief. And yeah. So can you just give a little bit of an emotional profile of what it was like to have that happen? Yeah. So about a week after the tutorial, like it was all calm, but then suddenly I get an email from the supervising professor, um, Nathan Rambucana, and he says, tomorrow, um, come into a meeting with me and Herbert Pimlot, who was my master's program supervisor. So 
you know, someone, a journalist later pointed out to me who was um, also a university professor, he shouldn't have been there. Okay. Like it was very weird for him to have been there. He shouldn't yeah. have. And that was just kind of an intimidation thing. Yeah. Um, like they're trying to insinuate you could be kicked out of your master's program. Oh, right. Okay. Did you feel that when you were there? Did you feel intimidated and a threat to be kicked out? Well, yeah. So I'll, I'll get into that. So, um, and then, yeah, so you have to meet with me, Herbert Pimlot, and an official from the Diversity Equity Office. Okay. And so, yeah, I saw those words, Diversity Equity Office, and I thought, like, I'm not the kind of person yeah. who needs intervention from that. Like, okay. I'm a pretty, like, empathetic person. Um, I don't think this is this is really strange. Like, when I first read that email, I was, like, I went back into my chair. You know what I mean? Oh, really? Like, I was, like, But didn't it kind, kind of, of make sense because you were the outlier in your classes? that maybe you had said something too off turn and someone had picked up on it. Um, but the thing is, then it's like the thought police, right? It wasn't about anything I said. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, but at that point, like I wasn't a black sheep at that point, really. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yes, internally in my master's class, I, I felt a little bit like, wow, these people are all, all very extreme and they seem not open to a lot of things internally. I thought that, Yeah. but still like when it came to like economic matters and, and, thinking about class and stuff we were pretty much all on the same page okay yeah so there Um, was a lot of overlap in general yeah and and of course like my views are a little different now like as i've gotten older and stuff and graduated but um so uh i went into the meeting and what what was it what did i say i was going to get to later i had something to say about that like i was curious to know if you did feel intimidated and if you actually felt a real threat of being kicked out of the university oh yeah so yeah walking into that room the meeting room with the three people, I, I just had a sense of like, you know, if, if they kick me out, then mm. that's just what it's going to be. Yeah. I don't care. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause you weren't too attached to the program itself. Yeah. But at the same time, sh- there is a principle thing. Like should, yeah. should you kick out someone like me yeah. just for fully being yeah. like more open than everyone yeah. else? Yeah. Um, and engaging with, with stuff that isn't brought into the university. Cause yeah. it's like too dangerous. Okay. So we're in the room. And yeah, and so I, I start recording. I So when I saw the email the day before, I called my mom, actually. That was like yeah. one of the first things I did. Yeah. And I asked her, like, I think I should record this. What do you think? And yeah. she agreed. Yeah. And if she had said no, then I wouldn't have done it. Oh like, I, I wanted my mom's, like, permission. Thank God for yeah. mom. So I thought, like, I'm going to record this because I think this is, like, Something's I'm just getting up. red Something's flags. Up. Yeah. 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 And I'm just, like, so glad I did because yeah. no one would have ever like believed me yeah and the thing is also like the first news article that was written about this thing she didn't mention that i had recorded okay the meeting because yeah. i asked her not to yeah because at that point i wasn't sure the legality of yeah it. Okay, and yeah. It, it did end up being completely legal and all that and so yeah like there were a lot of on that first initial news article where it was not said that i had recorded the meeting yeah you know there were a lot of supportive comments but then also some saying like oh well this is just like one side of the story this yeah. is just the ta yeah mm, i'm a little skeptical like we yeah. need the other side of the story yeah and it's like of course the university would have denied yeah of course and so when i came out with the recording everything blew up oh like wow. blew up okay yeah because people could hear it for themselves yeah and what happened in the interview itself like just very briefly yeah so um i was accused of breaking the sexual harassment and and gendered violence policy of the school yeah which technically i did mm-hmm. so technically questioning the usage of pronouns in society does break oh okay so just by violence. virtue of showing the video <laughs> yeah Okay, but after you showed the video, did you yourself, like, you said something like that was implied? So so the whole problem was, I was also, by the way, accused of violating the Ontario Human Rights Code and breaking Bill C-16. And the video was actually questioning Bill C-16 itself. So apparently it's breaking Bill C-16 to question Bill C-16. Oh, I see. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So my whole crime was remaining neutral to the issue of gender pronouns. So if I had condemned it. If I had condemned okay. Jordan Peterson, yeah. I would have been fine. I would okay. have been in the clear. Like yeah. as long if I wanted to show that clip, I could have said Jordan Peterson is an evil man yeah. who like wants to erase trans people's dignity and humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And then like that would have been awesome. Yeah. But because I didn't do that, like honestly at that time, I was I was kind of interested in this this rise of yeah. uh, like alternative yeah, pronouns. It's very, very I didn't even know what to think myself. Yeah. Which is why I thought let's have, you know, a discussion. Like what yeah, do other people that's think? That's exactly what I mean is yeah. the ability to arrive at a mature conclusion about something because you've inter- like you've done your discourse and you've done talking you've, d- you've you've actually dug into it but what i also wanted to say was 
It's funny that you got reprimanded for being neutral when, in fact, neutrality is sort of what you want when facilitating discussion amongst uh, your students, right? Like if you have a professor who's leaning one way or the other, it sort of colors your own discussion and how you feel because you want to appease the person who's in that mm-hmm. seat of authority, which was in this situation was you. So if I was your student, I might want to agree with you or disagree with you, but it's in my best interest that you remain neutral so that I can arrive at my own conclusion, you know, with a group of my peers who in this case were undergrad students independent of your influence, you know? So yeah. it's, it's funny that you, it's kind of ironic, I would say. But they, their whole point was it's not okay to be neutral. And he also, like one of the things Ram Buchanan, I think it was said was, would you also question whether it's okay for like a black person to marry a white person or something? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. like, and he was like, he said something about how they're, the, the campus is blanketed with poster, like white supremacist posters. And yeah. I was like, what's well, not? <laughs> what? And he, he like, he asked me something about that. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. He and then asked they, if you're the one that's putting them up. <laughs> no, he didn't ask you? that. <laughs> and so they were just trying to like really pound into me the idea that it's not okay to be neutral. Yeah. And this program exists, the communication department exists yeah. to like dismantle capitalism and dismantle the family unit and stuff like that yeah. and they insulted yeah. jordan peterson of course they called yeah. him a charlatan they compared him to hitler yeah um so they said like it was if i neutrally played a speech by hitler yeah no. okay this whole thing happens you take it to the press how did you decide to take it to the press like what was that because i think a lot of people might like for example if it was me i'd be a little bit intimidated and i'd be like okay i might use this recording in discussion with the university if there's some sort of like a beyond just that sitting um like if it sort of goes to like university trials or it's <laughs> i could use that recording then and there i don't think a lot of people would think to go to the press that's what i'm trying to say um so I'm like an anti-bureaucracy person. Yeah. And so I knew that, oh, yeah, if I take this to like the vice president of whatever, the dean of whatever. Yeah. Of course, they're going to try to suppress it. Like, yeah. they, they're administration people. That's, yeah. Their bottom line is just making the university profitable. Yeah. Um. So am I going to take it to them? I'm like, no. Yeah. W- what would that do to change what just happened? Yeah. And so at the time, like, I like free speech on campus is a yeah. term I don't think I'd ever used like okay. ever. Yeah. I, I was not into that scene. Yeah. And like all these uh, like right wing commentators and, and stuff and progressive commentators that I've heard of now, I had not heard of back then who talk about things like free speech on campus. Yeah. I'd never like heard of this sphere at all. Okay. Um, and so like, I just, I want to, so like to, to delve into the line of logic that sort right. of, yeah. 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 So I didn't have the language yeah. or like the thought background for it, okay. but I knew that something egregious had just happened Yeah, and that the whole purpose of the university was just undermined. Exactly. They were yeah. ruining what the university is about for yeah. their own agendas. Agenda. Yeah. And again, I hadn't, I was not deeply into these issues because yeah. sometimes you hear about. Um, people who are in maybe similar situations yeah. as mine, but they come at it from a clear conservative perspective, yeah. a clear yeah. Christian you perspective. You are very just like, eh, yeah, whatever. I'm just asking questions yeah. in a very neutral way. I'm, and you, you're also very open to discussion. So I, I think you actually genuinely ask those questions to receive a genuine response. You're not like you're not you're not doing it from a malevolent place so for you to get called out like that and for you to be threatened in that way by you know a room of your superiors and you know all these university officials or whatever is jarring because it was so blindly unnecessary it does feel a lot like just like the thought police or the speech police Mm -hmm. as well right yeah like i thought this was just not okay this is we need to be like proud of our universities in Canada. Yeah. And and um, I think people need to hear this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you went to the press, were you feel how did you feel? Were you feeling like really nervous about the whole process or? Um, so I had never taken anything to the media before. Like, how did you do it? Did you? Email? <laughs> yeah, like I just emailed a couple outlets and I said, like, I think my title was like free speech on campus is dead or something. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I said like, hi. Um, and I explained the situation briefly. And then yeah. I said, I have an audio recording if you're interested. And the first person to reply to me was Christy Blatchford, who is yeah. a columnist with the National Post. We spoke, I think the next day and she said, okay, my article is going to come out on like Thursday or Friday or whatever it was. Wow. And I was like, yay. Like, I was like, this is awesome. Like, 
like at that point, I was just like, I just wanted one article about this. Yeah. Just one. Like, yeah. I just want this to be told and In then, and then I'm happy. Yeah. yeah. But of course it ended up being so much bigger than that. Do you really <laughs> feel like, of course though, because I wouldn't think of course, I think sometimes we feel like we don't have a lot of power. So like, even just to get that, like you just said, like to get that one article would be great because that would sort of create a sense of awareness in at least your immediate community. I think it's actually kind of shocking that it was picked up in the way that it was because a lot of things like this happen Mm -hmm. and they have a little bit of coverage on them and then that's it. They're done. Um, So I think this is because I had a recording, which was like later found out and it was very visceral for people because like you're touching on, right? Like imagine being in that room, like with your superiors and and when you did nothing wrong and they're just trying to pound into this idea that like, it's not okay to be neutral. Yeah. (laughs) Like stuff like that. It's not okay to question. Yeah. Like you have an agenda to push in that classroom, push it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And so people, especially in like the academic community, they could see themselves in my place. But there are factors also that I think matter a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I was a male, I think if I was a white male, mm-hmm. my story would have been a little more dismissed. And the, oh, okay. yeah, oh. I think it matters that I was female because the whole narrative around Jordan Peterson. Yeah. What oh, is, that's very true. He's like yeah. an incel yeah. leader. He's yeah. he's for like broken men or whatever. Uh, people perceive his audience to be mostly male. Yeah. So basically. if if I was a male, I think it would have just been that. Yeah. The fact that I was a female, people are like, oh, yeah. like what? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess yeah. that that has some bearing on it as well. So after that article comes out and you feel satisfied and you feel like yeah, you know, you did something. You got yeah. some sort of you know your voice out there in some capacity then what happened because that was definitely not the end of it yeah then you know more outlets you know there's more columns being written yeah you know more outlets contacting me yeah um but i think what shook things up probably the most is global news released like an eight minute version yeah i think it's about a 47 minute recording yeah they released and i like (laughs) honest i don't remember telling them that that was okay to be honest oh okay Uh, but they did and that's like when it blew yeah up. yeah and then and then eventually the full version was released by the national post later too um and i'm curious to know what was it like to be an otherwise unknown ordinary person that is then shoved into the media junket as like this talking head on freedom of speech on campus so with all these media requests coming in like it's it's hard for me to describe like the intensity of that year yeah. and especially condensed into like a couple months, but it was just everyday like interviews, like talking to a reporter, talking to this person, maybe not even a media interview, but like, uh, like consulting with someone. Uh, so yeah, talking to media, talking to, well, then the speaking engagements start coming in too, like speaking in the U S and different universities in Canada. Like sometimes I would be flying somewhere, you know, like at least once a month. This is while I'm still a student, still TAing and flying somewhere else and preparing, you know, my presentation every month, uh, maybe twice or three times a month sometimes. And so, and I can just, like, there are so many nights when all this was happening. Yeah. Because I also had to prepare for these media interviews and and speaking engagements. I couldn't come off as uninformed because, again, free speech on campus was something I did not know the theories. I did not know people's other experiences. I thought this was the first time something had ever happened. Like, I had not heard of someone like, um, you know, Brett Weinstein from Evergreen College who got, like, mobbed. I had not heard of any of those kind of things before. I didn't know about all these, like, free speech rallies at, like, Berkeley with Milo Yiannopoulos. I had never heard of those before. And so all of a sudden, like, I I was thrown into it. I had to educate myself. You became one. One of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had to be ready to talk about it. Yeah. I had to be ready to give answers and solutions yeah. and all this. And yeah, like I for so this was kind of going down in November, December. And there were just so many nights where I fell asleep in my clothes, laptop open, light on, like probably like even sometimes a week in a row, with, like without brushing my teeth, taking out my contacts, oh just my like, gosh. like I just pass out. Yeah. Like a lot of days like that. Um, what motivated you to go through it? So like, because you could have stopped, right? Right. Yeah. So at this, this, that whole year, um, like I was just very energized. And I think like I could feel a lot of other people around me energized too. Like specific, it. yeah, like yeah. the Laurier profs who did stand up for me, they yeah. were energized. A lot of students, like they were into this. Like you yeah. just had a feeling of like yeah. energy and people are into this. Yeah. And this is like a moment, okay. a cultural yeah. moment. Definitely. And it like it gives me tingles. Like, yeah. Because I was just going to say too, um, there was a lot of hate, like people against you, people that wanted you to shut up and were, you know, saying really negative things about you. But then there was this 
whole network of support from people who are students, people who are older than you, people who are professors, people who, you know, even Jordan Peterson Mm -hmm. supported you Mm -hmm. because they were all saying, you've essentially done nothing wrong here. You deserve to be able to ask a question or play a piece of, you know, otherwise pretty basic media in your tutorial and it should be fine. So it's kind of polarizing in the sense that it's very scary to go against the grain. It absolutely is, especially when people are literally writing you daily, telling you that you're an idiot and you need to sit down and shut up. That was just on Twitter, basically. But but yeah, you're still and people can't. Like a lot of people cannot um, transcend that. Like they, if they hear a few negative whispers, they're like, okay, I'm done. Right. But at the same time, you had this other network of people who was like, no, 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 keep going. Don't stop. You know, let's keep this discussion rolling and you be the mediator in a lot of ways. over there. Because over the, all the different, you know, media junkets that you were talking, you were sort of leading the discussion for a hot minute there. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So what was it like to have that experience of having all these people against you, but then all these great people energized all around you? Did you only yeah. focus on the positive? Um, mostly because having the support was absolutely crucial. If I read a story in the news and find someone did something great, I'm not really the kind of person who would send them an email or send yeah. them a letter in the mail. I think I've probably only done that a couple times to maybe like an author of a book I liked. I was flooded with emails and support. I was even flooded with like paper letters who just sent it to oh. Lindsay Shepard, Laurier University. Oh, wow. And it came to like my TA mailbox. Okay. And like I just opened it one day and I had all these letters. Even like some people sent me a bit of money at the start. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like checks. Yeah. Like, I mean, they would talk to me first and then, and then, but yeah, like I got a little bit of money, Yeah, not a lot, but yeah. um, Yeah. And, and so like, I just, I know that if I was only seeing the negative comments and not getting this support, I would have been like, oh shit, like I'm going to disappear now (laughs) of like, of course. And, and the thing is like, most people stay silent. You know, most people like they don't have like a lot of time to write an email or a letter. Yeah. Having the vocal people supporting me was yeah. just like so crucial. Yeah, and yeah, like I remember when I first saw the first column. Yeah, uh, in the National Post that was released about the story, I was like, oh god, like what are people gonna think? Am yeah. I gonna be demonized? Like maybe I'm in the wrong here, yes. and like this is gonna be an embarrassment. Like, yeah, okay, let's see what happens. And then I started. I was just like refreshing the comments on that one story, like as it came out, and I was like, okay, like it's it's basically all supportive. And then it was just like a huge relief. Wow. I was like, okay, yeah, I am. I am in the right here. There are the detractors. And I, I find what they have to say is kind of interesting. Yeah, like I do yeah. think about it. Like it's just, it's kind of just the same stuff. Like transphobic white woman, blah, blah, Yeah, okay. Yeah, because I, I did notice too. Um, I wasn't super, like I, I, I did try to stay on top of all your stuff, but you were doing so much stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of hard, but um, there was this conflation with what you were doing. Like some people actually thought that you were pushing a narrative of inclusivity or sorry, not being inclusive. When in reality, you were just pushing a narrative. of, Hey, we need to be able to ask questions. We need to have freedom on campus. So I think a lot of people mistook what you were actually even talking about, right? Which was not, you weren't trying to get rid of gender pronouns. You weren't even, you know, even questioning them anymore at that point. You were just saying, hey, I need to be able to ask questions like that question I have asked. Yeah. And like, it it kind of turned into this free speech on campus. I don't remember really that being the issue for me. For me, it was open inquiry on campus. So yeah, Yeah. the freedom to talk about things um, and ask questions. Freedom of speech, like it wasn't really because people would say like, oh, Lindsay says she doesn't have freedom of speech, but look how much she's talking. It's like, well, I never argued I didn't have freedom of speech. If anything, it would be the students in my class. For me, it's like open inquiry. And now at this point, you've sort of transitioned into being more of a journalist on similar. Like, what do you what is your career like now post all of this? Because do you still do a lot of media engagements now? And how long has it been since this whole thing? Yeah, so this was all in November 2017. That's when it all started. Okay. Yeah. But of course, things slow down. And, you know, like, I remember, so this all started happening again in November 2017. I remember, like, in early December 2017, I was getting the comments like, your 15 minutes are going to be over soon. Your, you know, your 15 minutes are up. It's like, I still get those comments and it's yeah. two years later. Yeah. Like, <laughs> people are always telling you your 15 minutes are up and it's like, yeah. Well, like, I'm just being me. Yeah. Like, I'm not doing any publicity stunts to stay yeah. relevant two years later. Like, I'm just, I'm I'm still talking about things that matter because yeah. this still matters. So, yeah, career-wise, so I have um, two fellowships yeah. now. So one is as campus free speech fellow at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. They're a legal advocacy group. 
Fellowships can be different. In this one, I research, I help with research projects. I write columns. Mm. Yeah. So the, like I would okay. say research and writing. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm also a investigative journalism fellow. I mean, I've, I just started that position like two weeks ago with True North. So they're a center for public policy in Canada. So that's what I do now. They're both part time um, because I'm also a mom, yeah. which I'm sure we'll get into. So that's yeah. like my primary occupation. Yeah. 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 Because I did want to touch on the fact that you were a mom, which I actually think only showcases more about how you're willing to go into your own path. Because when you told me you were pregnant, I was like, oh my God, like you were only 23 at the time? Yeah. Yeah. So you're 23 at the time. And you told me in this way, like, yep, this is <laughs> happening now. Ain't not a, ain't no thing. Like as if it wasn't a big deal as if, because I think culturally now we're shifting to child rearing as like, and like having children as this huge point of preparation, this huge moment in a person's life. Whereas in the past, maybe you could, you know, kind of have a couple of kids and continue on and struggle and so on and so forth. Whereas now people really prioritize the need to have an established job, an established home, either they're, you know, in the process of owning their own home or they, they own their own home. And then in a relationship that is solid, like you were in a very new relationship as well. Mm -hmm. How did you have that sort of sheer confidence of just everything's going to be okay? Cause that's what I read in your voice. Everything's going to be okay. This is not a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I've always wanted kids. And so you and I both were, were minimalist. So it's not like I was thinking, oh, I need to own like a house with a backyard yeah. and like, I need to have like all these things. Like, I think that yeah. stuff can come later and it's not like I'm depriving my child. The thing is like, first of all, so there's two things I don't really buy into. The first is like that you have like one or two kids and you just invest everything into them. Yeah. Like I just don't really buy into that. Take them to hockey practice and spend yeah. like thousands of dollars on their hockey every yeah. month. And the second thing is that kids are expensive and yeah. like at least having a baby like yeah babies are just not expensive yeah um they're they're time consuming and yes so the main thing is the loss of income so i could be making a full-time income yeah. right now at a yeah. nine to five or whatever but of course i don't so that is the but loss of money I, I would assume that all these uh, these sort of things that you have on the go they are profitable like within reason oh sure yeah, yeah. i just mean like a full time yeah but most moms don't because i know so many families where Either the mom and the dad works and then the other parent is just at home because not a lot of people have the ability to generate income while also at home. You know what I mean? So you you're sort of lucky in that regard as well. Yeah. And in that way, it did. It did work out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And your partner, he also works from home. He does, which is, yeah, pretty helpful because yeah. if I need to go have a shower, he can yeah. watch the baby, yeah. for example. I don't want to yeah. make it sound like it's easy. It's kind of like I'm just the opposite of a working mom. So you know how like working moms, they talk about how they go to their job juggling nine yeah. to five. They get home yeah. and it's the second shift, right? So that, then it's the childcare, the cleaning, the cooking. You okay. wake up the next day and yeah. you do it all again. I'm just yeah. the opposite. So I stay at home. I watch my son cook, clean, or actually, sorry, I don't cook <laughs> um, throughout the day. And then um, at night is when I start working at my jobs. Oh, so when he's sleeping. Like during during oh, the hours okay. of like when I wake up yeah. until when he goes to sleep for the yeah. night, I am not going to touch work. So I think at that first part, I could kind of get a little more done. But then it started to get to the point where he was more active throughout the day. I was just like, like, I just can't. Yeah. Like, and and the dishes are piling up and yeah. like I have all this stuff to do um, to take out like all the garbage. That that was good, though, like making it so I, I work after he goes to sleep. So when you were when you first found out you're pregnant, did you sort of fear what was going to happen with your career? So actually what made me like I didn't really receive any like job offers. I, I could have freelanced and put more time into yeah. to YouTube, I suppose. And like, again, like job offers did come in yeah. like later when people, cause people aren't always like on top of your life, you know, yeah. they're they kind of like come to you a few months later and they're like, Oh, you graduated. Do you want to like work with us? Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, when I was pregnant, I was like, Oh my God, like I'm going to miss out on, on the workforce. And so I was like on indeed and I was looking at Oh, like yeah. jobs. Yeah. And then I was like, yeah, like office coordinator, administration, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And like, like whatever, like people have to do what they have to do. Like, yeah. and I've had jobs like that, whatever, yeah. not like being mean towards people who have those jobs, whatever. Yeah. yeah I thought like being like an administrative assistant yeah. or being a mother. But why would you be looking even at administrative assistant? 
Because you have a master's degree. Yeah, but you have to think about government jobs are now like out of the question for me. University jobs are out of the question. Those people, like they don't really understand this experience. They just see my name and they think like trans. That's really funny because that's sadly true. Yeah. The thing is you would have to actually spend not even five minutes though, I think taking a little bit of consideration into your body of work and seeing that you're not a transphobe. In fact, that was a blip in your time frame where you simply brought a discussion up. That was that was never really played about on again. Yeah, but like imagine with if you search my name, imagine trying to get a, like a job with some sort of nonprofit yeah. that does like some like kind of cultural work or impossible. Yeah, like yeah. um when in fact you're the person in a lot of ways. Maybe. So but you have to imagine like yeah. when people search my name, they see yeah. Oh, like this person is yeah. like anti-LGBT, yeah. like, yeah. ooh, not aligned with our mission statement. Yeah. So yeah, I was not, I was looking at what could I get where like they would not be aware of my situation. And I was like, being a mom sounds so much better than all of this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So then you become a mom and you kind of get these fellowships in order and you start working. And how old is your son now? Six months. So he's six months now. How do you feel about the way both of those streams are going, like your career and then also your being a mom? Um, I think like I've always been someone who's good at balancing. Yeah. Yes, you are. Like I obviously am taking on too much. Yeah. I always have. Yeah. Like throughout my undergrad degree, I was working like 40 hours a week at like various jobs. Like I've always just been that kind of person. Mm -hmm. So am I taking on too much? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah. There. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Sort of to wrap this interview up and sort of reflect on what we've talked about up until this point. I want to sort of delve into how was it exactly that you were comfortable taking on all this stuff and not, and doing it so with, with such courage and you weren't scared. And that's what really sort of shocks and impresses me. It's like in every, in both those situations, motherhood, and then, you know, questioning authority in the way that you do, that's quite scary for a lot of people. Where does this come from? Like, where does this sense of courage and, you know, understanding of the self come from? Because you seem really sure of yourself and we can look at back at these two examples, you know, questioning authority in the university and then becoming a mom. Um, people have asked me that before, like where it came from. And yeah. I just like, I just don't know. You don't know. No, okay. but I do know what I can tell you is during the Laurier stuff, I, like I kind of touched on it before, but I was like, it's hard to describe, like just, I was energized yeah, and I was just like ready to do all that and yeah. ready to do all the speaking engagements. And yeah. like, I, you know, a lot of the time I didn't even have to really prepare for them because I just knew what I wanted to say. Yeah. Um, but now it's different. Like that energy, it, like like, I don't want to say it's died. I don't want to yeah. say it's, I guess it's just slowed down. Yeah. It's like, things are different now. Like that cultural moment yeah. is like kind of just a memory. Like, I don't want to make it sound so far away because yeah. it's not, it's still important and it's still relevant to what's mm-hmm. happening today. But for me, at least that direct energy that was kind of like pushing me, firing me through everything. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just kind of something I look back on and like yeah. smile. And because yeah. I did like, for example, I did a speaking engagement um, just in February, like while yeah. I was still pregnant. Yeah. And that's kind of the first time I did a speaking engagement and felt less of that like fire behind me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, because also I think the further you get away from being campus affiliated, yeah. Cause I had graduated yeah. and I'm, I've graduated. I don't know. Like at what point, um, are you not really in touch with the campus anymore? Yeah. And I think I still am yeah. like, you know, like some people who graduated 20 years ago are, are like, or maybe even never went to university are like going on about like all the college liberals. And it's like, yeah. Like, are you like connected? Yeah. Are you on the ground? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And like, I was on the ground, you know, a lot was happening. I also am curious to know, have you ever fallen on your butt in the sense of like, you've done something courageous or, and then just gotten pushed down or even trying? Well, so something I think about is like, I call it free speech fatigue. So someone, for example, like I'm speaking or sorry, I'm moderating a panel of speakers um, on November 2nd. One of the headlining speakers is Megan Murphy, who's like a local prominent feminist who's known for being a transphobe, of course. Um, I announced it and mm-hmm. I announced how SFU where it's being hosted is, yeah. was kind of a lot of pushback. Yeah. And someone commented and they're like, isn't all this getting old? So like, I thought to myself, like, of course it's getting old. Yeah. Like, of course. That doesn't mean you just say, oh, okay. Like, yeah, yeah. we just won't have these discussions at universities anymore. Oh, yeah. well, yeah. let's just give up. Like, no, like 
yes, it, it it's um the same thing over and over in a lot of ways. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you give up. That just plays into, you know, the, like the radical leftist hands yeah. of, of wanting to shut stuff yeah. down. Like, I guess they they just think eventually we'll get bored of this issue. Like, yeah. come on. No, like we yeah. can just get bored and give up. Yeah. Do you feel, though, that these things that have sort of worked out for you have given you a fuel in pursuing other things? Like, because you mentioned earlier in the interview that life is very exciting and it excites you to think about different paths. And it seems like in a lot of ways that you have gone down two paths, like you had a successful academic career and now you're having you're having a successful home, like a domestic life. Right. So I think it's it's a lot. Um, I think for people who are listening, who are under 25 and they're thinking, wow, she, you know, did this whole you know, activism thing and then became a mom. And what's even more exciting yeah. is that like you can still do a lot through your forties, fifties, sixties, you know, like yeah. imagine what, when I'm in my mid forties, my son will be 20, right? Yeah. Like then I can start yeah. a whole nother thing. Yeah. I mean, I do have, want to have other kids, but probably let's say by the time I'm like, like let's say 52. Yeah. Um, I could start a whole new career technically because I will have free time suddenly. Yeah. And that's like, you know, more than 10 years before retirement age usually is. Yeah. Um, do you see yourself having more kids? Yeah, I'd like to have four. Yeah. I don't know if it's possible for me. Like four just seems like a good number. We like we buy a lot of stuff secondhand. We live like a pretty humble life. Well, we have everything we need. And babies are just not really expensive. We, for example, the biggest expense is probably formula. Um, Like you just hand me down the clothes. Mm -hmm. Like I guess once you start putting your child in extracurriculars, maybe that's like when it gets expensive. So was there absolutely like no fear at all while you were doing either one of these things, like becoming a young mom or pursuing a sort of an academic career in, in activism? I, I just think you need to be excited. Yeah. And if if something like let's say something goes so wrong mm-hmm. in your life where you live, like let's just say I'm a different person now. Yeah. And like I, I live, you know, in Vancouver and like like I don't have a relationship. My parents yeah. hate me. And um, maybe I said something like on social media. And now everyone hates me and I can't yeah. find a job. Like, I don't know. Let's like, mm-hmm. let's say like my life was totally destitute. Like I would just move to a different country and like open a restaurant or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Like I just think like the world so is so big. The punches. Yeah. 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 I just don't like this mentality. It kind of maybe goes back yeah. to when I was talking about like high school. Yeah. I don't like that mentality of like, well, the whole world is this like one situation. Yeah. That's everything there is and there's yeah. just nothing else yeah like you have to think about the, the like billions of people in the world who are all living just such different lives you yeah. know there's rural farmers there's yeah. like city condominium folk yeah um and everything in between suburb yeah. people like yeah. foreign country people people who okay. guard life houses yeah. like there's so many different yeah. things people are doing and it's all very interesting to me yeah i th- i do agree we do sometimes see our existence and our reality as this closed box and if we mess up everything is gone there is no possibility of starting over and there's also no excitement in starting over because starting over is in itself a bad thing Right. So when you say if everything had gone to like just this extreme negative, you would be fine because you would just sort of cultivate something new. I find that really impressive and inspiring because the reason why so many of us live in fear of of speaking up or going against the grain is because we don't have that understanding. We don't have the understanding of there is forgiveness in the world. There is redemption. There is the chance to start a new, like, or an end to one experience. Like, let's say, yeah, your whole academic career ended. Let's say it happened. That doesn't mean your life is over and that no no other doors will ever open for you again. Something new will come along. Or even with, let's say, motherhood, let's say you discover that you don't enjoy being a mother. You can, you don't have to have more kids. You can sort of anchor down in the smaller family unit and enjoy, you know, what little pleasures you do have and, and continue on to, to harvest um, the experiences that you find worthwhile, which it seems like is having discussions about things that are otherwise sort of scary in our society or aren't celebrated, right? Because I feel like you're going to continue to have a passion for that, even if the flame is dying a bit. Yeah. Like when yeah. I, when I say the flame is dying, like yeah. I just, I don't mean it in like a negative way. You know, I just mean like that cultural moment is something to be kind of looked back on. And yes, it's still yeah. continuing in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like I've filed some freedom of information requests to yeah. get some information about yeah. um, what information was going between Laurier people. Uh, there's a lawsuit. So yeah. it is ongoing, you know, depending on what will happen, it might be back in the news cycle. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah. And, and so I think also part of what you're saying about 
starting over and rising like a phoenix and stuff. I think maybe my word of advice is like to in order to obtain that outlook, you kind of have to be willing to do a lot of different jobs and stuff. So, for example, like would I, you know, if I would I move to a small town in the middle of nowhere and work at a McDonald's? Absolutely. I like, I just, that's why I don't look down upon like any form of work. And I think a lot of people do. Hey, and I think a yeah. lot of people are so like status obsessed that they, they want they to think, maintain yeah, a certain station. I can't okay. do this job. I can't yeah. do this. Like, I think you could live in a small town, work at a Tim Hortons and have like a great life. Yeah, no, I get what you mean because I think a lot of us, and we mentioned this earlier in the interview when I was talking about the reason why so many of us are afraid to speak out, especially on the sort of issues that you were speaking out on, is because we could lose our job, which in turn means we lose our station in life, which in turn is awful. But then you're saying it, it's kind of like you're saying like you don't really have anything to lose because your happiness is not contingent on your line of work, your station in life or any real external thing. Am I getting that right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like as long as I'm like, I'm talking about people who like make principled decisions and yeah. like stand up for what they believe and stuff. I'm not talking about like committing a crime and then yeah. like moving somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. That's not what I mean. Like, yeah. What I was going to say is your ability to risk things has actually been your, the very base of all of it. You know what I mean? Like, because had you been too scared to, to risk, you wouldn't be in the place that you are, right? Because you could have lost. You could have lost your academic standing. You could have been removed from your university. That was, you had a feeling of threat in that regard, right? So, you, but you were willing to go forward and, and risk that and then pursue this higher good. Um, and one of the reasons I really wanted you to talk about these stories is because they were examples of not giving into fear or uncertainty. And there were, you're, but now I kind of see like your entire perception is that there is nothing to lose because life can just take a different turn. And like, there's so many different roads, which kind of connects to like what one of the first things that you said in the interview, which was, you are excited by life because it is so versatile and flexible. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, my very first guest. And if you guys want to follow Lindsay on all of her social media platforms, you can find her on Twitter as New World Hominin, and then you can find her on YouTube just as Lindsay Shepard. Thank you so much. Thanks.